Hello, and welcome to PCUM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with Dr. Gregory McDonald, Dean of the School of Health Sciences here at PCOM. In the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic has claimed the lives of over half a million Americans. With this influx of deaths, medical coroners find themselves on the front lines combating the disease. Accurately classifying deaths is an essential part of understanding the disease, as well as allocating resources to areas that are most effective. Today, Dr. McDonald shares what the past year has looked like for a medical coroner and how it will affect forensic education for years to come. In addition to his role as the Dean of the School of Health Sciences, Dr. McDonald also serves as the Chair of the Department of Forensic Medicine and Pathology at PCOM. Outside of PCOM, Dr. McDonald is the Chief Deputy Coroner from Montgomery County and serves as a forensic expert in the internationally renowned Vidoc Society, an organization that brings together forensic experts from all over the world to assist law enforcement agencies with cases that have gone unsolved. Welcome, Dr. McDonald. Thank you, Dr. Feldstein. Thanks for being here with us today. I've got a couple questions for you, and my first one is, what has the past year looked like for forensic medicine professionals and has COVID-19 brought about changes to your procedures? Well, that's an excellent question. And uh, um, yes, it certainly has uh, brought changes to our field, like it has many other uh, areas as well. So certainly we have changes in our office procedures because the personnel in a medical examiner or coroner's office are considered essential personnel. So all of our pathologists, our autopsy technicians, our forensic investigators, as well as our administrative staff are considered essential. And our office procedures have changed just like so many other office procedures have. Uh, social distancing in the office, wearing masks, uh, obviously hand washing or the things that everyone is doing now. So that certainly has imp impacted our day-to-day -day operations. But we also struggled with early uh, access to personal protective equipment, just like so many other places. And so that was a big struggle. I normally would wear my uh, N95 mask for once, one, one day, uh, and then I had to wear it several days in a row because of the lack of PPE. So that's not unusual, I know, in other medical settings. But... We forensic medicine professionals, pathologists, our uh, technicians, we're always cognizant of infectious diseases and the potential of acquiring them during the autopsy procedure. But COVID-19 has brought a greater sense of urgency for us since we are still learning uh, a lot about the infectivity rate of COVID-19 uh, regarding a decedent a dead individual. There was an anecdotal report early on in the process of a pathologist who may, and I say may, have passed away from obtaining uh, COVID from an autopsy, and that was in Spain. But that was only one report, so we're still waiting for a lot of literature and, re and research to be done on the infectivity rate of uh, COVID-19 regarding a decedent. Now, many medical examiners and coroner's offices, including uh, my own, have been performing post-mortem 
COVID tests, nasal swabs. And based on the results of those nasal swabs, we may determine whether we should do an autopsy or not. So let's say if we have a decedent who is dead and we're doing a COVID-19 and that becomes positive. Well, then we may think twice about doing an autopsy where we may expose a pathologist, a technician, and a variety of other people to that COVID. Now, obviously, if an autopsy is really needed, if it's uh, legally demanded, we would do the autopsy and, and we would uh, do whatever precautions we would need to. But it does have a role in, in how we would uh, approach different cases. And we certainly have had an influx of number of fatalities with COVID. Um, but as the number of actual autopsies that have been done, uh, that can vary. Uh, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And again, depending on what the protective uh, equipment is, availability is, that may uh, play a, a role as well. So one of the other issues that have been plaguing a lot of medical examiners and coroners offices is the lack of storage capacity for the students uh, who are victims of COVID. Our hospitals, as I think is well known, we have uh, overrun many of the hospitals' capacity for storage of decedents, and then that has that uh, responsibility has shifted to many coroner's offices and medical examiner's offices, who also uh, are being taxed uh, for their storage capacity. So many offices, again, including my own, have had to resort to getting refrigerated facilities, generally temporary uh, refrigerated facilities, to be able to store uh, the remains of these uh, the COVID outbreaks. So that certainly has, has changed the number of cases reported to offices, uh, the storage capacity, uh, having to transport those bodies, and it really can be very taxing to the system uh, in, in many regards. Um, there's been a lot of speculation around classifying COVID-19 deaths. Can you explain how COVID-19 deaths are classified? Yes, yes, that, that certainly has uh, become uh, politicized in some ways. It certainly has been uh, very controversial. And I'll give you my take on it as a person who's filed, uh, filled out thousands and thousands uh, of death certificates in his career. First of all, we want to look for the cause of death. And the cause of death uh, determines the sequence of medical conditions uh, that have the greatest impact on what's actually causing the death. So we have what we call the immediate cause of death, which is the most proximal thing that killed someone. And that may be, you know, cardiopulmonary arrest or something like that, but that's very nonspecific. So then we have to look a little bit deeper to result, to find out why their heart stopped, why their lungs uh, stopped functioning. And oftentimes it may be due to pneumonia, but that pneumonia oftentimes in, in COVID patients is attributed to that COVID infection, right? So they get a COVID infection, they develop a pneumonia, and then they develop maybe an overwhelming infection from that pneumonia, like sepsis, and then they unfortunately pass away. So looking at it at first glance, you may say, well, the person died of overwhelming infection. That, and that is true. However, the initiating cause of that, the initiating event was COVID infection. So, so that's something that I think a lot of people may get confused about how COVID plays a role. That's one set of cases. Then you have another set of cases of, of 
people who oftentimes are particularly medically vulnerable. They have a lot of medical comorbidities. Maybe they have heart disease. Maybe they have cancer. Maybe they have diabetes. And they may die of some of the complications associated with metastatic cancer, cancer which is spread throughout the body. But while they're admitted at the hospital for the treatment of that cancer, they contracted COVID infection, which also resulted in some respiratory insufficiency. So in that case, you may put the cause, the main cause of death as being complications of metastatic carcinoma, but you would also contribute the fact that the person had COVID infection resulting in respiratory problems because that respiratory problem certainly did not help the person who already had metastatic cancer. Uh, and so in that case, COVID still would be classified as a COVID-related death, even though that person had a lot of other medical problems and, and may have died anyway but the COVID certainly contributed to it. And I think that that second scenario that I've described is what oftentimes is the point of confusion for a lot of people. They think, well, this person, you know, she's an elderly person who had you know, breast cancer that spread all through her body, and yet you're contributing, you're calling it a COVID death. Well, it, it is in some uh, instances, because COVID is certainly not the treatment of choice for someone who has metastatic cancer. So uh, from a medical and a legal perspective, it is certainly acceptable, in fact, preferable that COVID would be placed on the death certificate and ultimately would be included in that greater number of COVID deaths. So I hope that that answers uh, your question regarding uh, COVID classification. Yeah, it does. And I think it, it'll help a lot of people understand, because as you said earlier, this was being at certain times uh, politicized, you know, as an issue. And I think uh, you gave a lot of clarity to that. Do you anticipate changes in forensic medicine education following the pandemic? Well, you know, as obviously, and, and I'm not sure you've been asked the question uh, quite frequently, uh, how pan the pandemic has affected education in general. And it certainly has affected forensic medicine education as well. Uh, we're certainly going to be doing more remote learning. Uh, I, throughout the course of the year, I found out that some of uh, my lecture material, some of my courses could actually be delivered in a very robust, very accurate uh, way remotely, where people do not have to be uh, in, in front of me in, in a live classroom. But there still are other aspects of what I do. Uh, we do mock crime scenes. We uh, do clandestine grave recoveries. And those are things that we right now we are filming them. We are demonstrating it to students without bringing them uh, on campus. But obviously, it's not the same thing as, as doing it in person and, and being able to interact with your colleagues when you're working up, let's say, a, a crime scene, which is a, a team activity. But so far, we've been able to manage, uh, I think, fairly successfully given the parameters that we're dealing with, because obviously the health and safety of our faculty, uh, staff, and students come first. So, uh, you know, that is one way that we have, uh, COVID has affected us. Another one is we, I think we're going to be concentrating more on handling mass fatalities. Right. And, and that's kind of alludes to my uh, answer to the first question in that we're having a lot of people dying rather suddenly. And, you know, you look throughout the country, there are mass graves 
being set up for victims. Um, there were the refrigeration uh, facilities that we needed uh, because this was happened you know, very quickly in a very short period of time that we had to accommodate to it. So I certainly am going to include that in the uh, curriculum for next year, how to handle these uh, types of, of mass fatalities, uh, certainly the importance of personal protective equipment uh, when you're going to a, a, a scene. And we were always worried about that, but again, I, I think it's taken a, a greater sense of urgency with COVID. And because uh, we can, you know, when some of our people, they attend a, a death scene, you have the decedent there, but you also have other uh, first responders there. You may have family members. So you may go into this house where there were several family members may have had COVID. Uh, and certainly we have to protect uh, our people. So that that's something that I'm going to incorporate uh, as well in, in my lectures going forward. Uh, just out of curiosity, have Many funeral homes and funeral directors like reached out to you for guidance during this pandemic because I would imagine if you're overwhelmed with the scenes, they are as well. And, oh, and absolutely. How handle the scenes and, you know, how to, you know, taking care of individuals that are COVID positive, you know, if you do the nasal swab. So have they sought, you know, forensic expertise during this pandemic? Yes, they have. And they've been pretty good about that. Um, they certainly do have their concerns. Uh, the, pro the embalming process is not nearly as invasive as, let's say, an autopsy would or surgery would. So I, I've tried to allay some of their fears regarding that. Um, but there is still a potential uh, possibility of, of contracting COVID. Um, but I've tried to tell them once the body is embalmed, COVID is really not going to be viable at that point it's during the embalming procedure. So I told them what I, I tell my staff, um, you know, obey the PPE uh, perspectives, the PPE protocols that have been set in place by the CDC, do all those things. And then that should pretty much cover them. Um, but you're right. Uh, again, they, they're struggling to keep up with the number of deaths themselves that are, are, are occurring. And so they have definitely been overworked uh, in, in their capacity. I'm sure you've got, uh, you know, a couple questions for me. You know, in, in medical school, we, we all learn about pandemics uh, and, and the different effects that can have. But you personally, uh, did you ever expect to lead an institution as big as PCOM uh, through one, uh, through a pandemic that we've ever, we've had uh, in the last year, year and a half? I can honestly say no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's funny, but you think about... Uh, interview questions, right? You know, for potential CEOs or, or presidents of universities, I, I would suffice to say that prior to this, no one ever asked, how would you lead during a pandemic? And for better or worse, I think that's got to become part of a skill set going forward for today's leaders, because, you know, as, as we well know, this will not be the last one. And, you know, the last one was 100 years ago. And I don't think it's going to take another 100 years for the next one. So, you know, we really do need to be prepared. And I think, you know, we learned a lot. It was challenging. It still is challenging. But, you know, we, we've got a great leadership team and a great community here that were very responsive. You know, and I think, suffice it to say, I'm really proud of everybody. I think we did a great job 
is an institution still continue to do a great job managing through this pandemic. And what made it even more challenging, you know, is the social environment that we're dealing with in our world today in terms of, you know, politics and what's happening and how the pandemic just exacerbated every social disparity, economic and, you know, poverty and healthcare across the board, which just added to it. So not only is it the pandemic from the virus, but kind of the social pandemic as well. So it's been quite a challenging time. So that was a very long answer to the original answer, which was no. <laughs> I, I, I never expected to lead an institution or live through one, a pandemic, quite frankly. So it's been tough for all of us, both at the professional and the personal level. So yes, well, I want to thank you uh, uh, for doing a great job leading through PCOM. Uh, you, you have done an excellent job, and it, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, and you're right, I think PCOM certainly has, has risen to that challenge very well. Yeah, it's a real correct credit to the community. And when you think about it, you know, through, you know, two states, three locations, multiple challenges. It's, uh, as I've said many times on our calls and our senior management calls and, you know, our our, our weekly, you know, sometimes daily task force meetings. This is the most challenging year I've had professionally in my entire life. You know, I, I think we've all risen to the occasion, yourself included, and everybody, you know, in this room on this call, and, and everybody in the PCOM community. It's really uh, everybody deserves a round of applause. And uh, I just want to thank you, Dr. McDonald, for joining us today. We appreciate your insight into this timely and important topic. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Felstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.